Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to Politics as Usual. Apologies for the delay since the last podcast. Uh, we were held up slightly by a technical hitch and then also by the the UK election. We thought we'd get lost in the midst of all the coverage of, of that and the subsequent result, which has continued to make British politics very interesting. But hopefully this will provide uh, at least some antidote to that. And this week we're talking to Jackie Smith, herself no stranger to British politics uh, as a former Home Secretary and Chief Whip and Education Minister. And Jackie's been working with us uh, in a number of countries over the last few years, uh, trying to support the process of political change in places like Jordan and elsewhere. And she is a fascinating politician. Her experience at the, the top level of British government, British politics, is combined with a, a uniquely personal touch which Jackie brings to, to all of the work that she does. She is a, an innate problem solver, which is perfect for a number of the, the places in which we work. Um, and as you'll hear, I asked Jackie about her background and her, why she got into politics in the first place, how she got into politics, and how she found it. And uh, it's a very interesting discussion with her about the nature of politics and how she moved from one position to, to another. And she, like us, seeks to employ this sort of insight in all the places in which we work around the world. I hope you enjoy it, and I'll talk to you again at the end. Yeah. Lot of sniffing, yeah. coughing, and general sort of snorting through. So, to start with, what, what you spent thirteen years as a member of parliament. Um, what did you do next? What what happened after that? Right. Um, well, I I was elected to parliament in nineteen ninety seven. I mean, I think the first thing to say is, of course, you your political career and life doesn't start at which at the point at which you're elected to Parliament. So there was a whole load of stuff that had come before that. Labour students, campaigning in my local area, being a local councillor, etc. So therefore, equally, when you end uh, uh, being a Member of Parliament, so for me that was in 2010, losing an election, uh, equally, your political life doesn't stop. So, you know, just as Tony Benn famously said, you know, I was leaving Parliament to spend more time with politics. I People often say to me, oh, so you've left politics now? And I say, no, I haven't. I left Parliament. I haven't left politics. So um, the, the first thing that happens, I think, is that you need some decompression because it's an enormously intense thing to be uh, both a minister and, and even just, uh, I think, increasingly an elected MP. So, you know, the very next day when I was walking my dog um, as a sort of relaxation and driving back home and there was a pothole in the road and my in- first instinct was to say, got to get onto the council about that. And then to suddenly realise that I was no longer responsible for everything from, you know, having a view on uh, national and international policy through to filling in potholes in my constituency. Um, It feels, you feel a bit bereft to begin with. And you suddenly think the thing that gave me the ability to influence things, i.e. my elected position, has now gone. 
However, what you then find very quickly is that you rediscover the things that made you passionate about politics to begin with, that to a certain extent and inevitably get squeezed out of you in a period as an elected politician, particularly, I think, if you're in government. And that is you suddenly think, oh, yeah, no, these are it's the ideas I'm interested in, it's the campaigning I'm interested in, it's the sort of complexity of the issues that I'm interested in and I can actually now start thinking about them a bit more and perhaps I can write something and oh and incidentally I don't have to and you know as a chief whip saying this this is quite shocking I don't have to sublimate my views to a collective view the whole time I can actually sort of be a bit more explorative in what I'm thinking about so I started doing that I started doing some training. I suddenly realised that I was interested in the international work, mm-hmm. not least courtesy of Global Partners, which as a minister I was notorious for turning down foreign trips because I had small children and a marginal constituency and I used to say, I'll go but I need to come back like the next day or something. So my private office was never very happy about that because they never got to go on good trips with me. Um <laughs> Uh, but that also then enables you to reflect and, and, and sort of put your own political experience in context. And um, in the last three years, I've moved back into sort of public administration stroke policy in chairing uh, an NHS um, trust. And I think that came just about at the moment when I thought, um, oh, I've had a period of time without having any sort of real responsibilities and now I feel the urge to get a bit of jeopardy back in my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so taking on the NHS Trust was a way of doing that. Um, did you leave with a plan? Did, oh, did yeah. I leave Parliament with yeah, a plan? Yeah, a plan about what you're going to do next. Or did you just sort of fall into place? Oh, uh, neither. Uh, <laughs> I had no plan. And that's partly because although I knew in uh, 2010 that I was you know, sparing a miracle, going to lose my seat. Some of my colleagues, also knowing that our sort of period in government was coming to an end, had decided not to fight their um, constituencies. And I think they had more of a plan and they'd been able to prepare in advance. Mm. But I um, decided I would fight my seat as sort of masochism strategy. And um, therefore, of course, you can't actively explore other options because the minute it becomes public that you're looking you know you're talking to people or you're looking at things then um that that's a big problem so no i didn't have i didn't have a plan i had um come from a teaching career previously and i knew that i enjoyed things that involved some element of training or teaching i didn't think i could go back into teaching um partly because it felt like going backwards too much, partly because, frankly, I didn't think a head teacher would want to employ somebody who'd been an <laughs> education minister. Was, or that, was that an option at one stage? You were actively thinking about going back into teaching at that level, having held, you know, significant... Not really, but precisely for that, for yeah. that reason. And it sort of, I suppose, smacks of arrogance, but there was a touch of, well, just a minute, I've been the Home Secretary, do I yeah. really want to go? And, you know, I loved teaching for right. 10 years, but... You know, did I really want to go and have a Friday afternoon in front of a group of 14-year-olds telling them to shut up and listen? I wasn't quite sure I really wanted to go back and do that. Um, but equally, you know, interestingly, I think lots of people say to you when you've been a minister or an MP, they say, oh, well, you know, 
you'll be well set, you'll make, be making a fortune, you'll be doing well. It's not, you know, actually, mm. there are lots of things for which former MPs and ministers are not well qualified, mm. like running anything, um, like uh, doing something where, where the people who are employing you don't want the controversy that's associated with you. Um, so you, you have to sort of take a bit of time, I think, working out how you can combine your particular skills and interests with the things that, with the experience that you've that you've got, and that certainly in my case, I think that took a bit of time to work through. Did you? Did, but you enjoyed teaching uh, be, before actually moving into politics. But what um, that it's a? I was reading um, the interview you did with the Institute for Government, where they they go through a whole oh, yeah, series yeah, of ministers, yeah. and it's fascinating yeah. just looking at those personal reflections. But one of the things which struck me is you moved from being a teacher into Member of Parliament and then you're sort of thrown into these ministerial jobs and I, I, I mean I guess there are two or three questions there. Mm-hmm. One is what, what first prompted you to become, why, why become a politician in the first place from being a, a teacher? Yeah well I think I would argue I was a politician before I was a teacher so um, I came from a political family <clears throat> My idea of a good night out when I was a teenager was to go to a council meeting with my mum, who was a local um, councillor. Uh, you know, I used to think election days were like Christmas Day, full of excitement. So um, it sort of was in my blood from an early stage. And then when I was at university, I was involved with Labour students. I had a year after university uh, where I worked for the Labour students and um, for an MP, actually, as well. Um, although then I decided that actually I didn't want to stay in London and stay around that um, that world. Um, and I, I hadn't decided I wanted to be a teacher at that point, but sort of looking at what was available, I, I went to do a postgraduate um, teacher training um, course and really enjoyed it. And from the beginning of my time as a teacher, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I mean, I have to say, I did teach for 11 years, but during that time, I was also spent six years as an elected councillor. I fought the general election in 1992 unsuccessfully. So the head teachers who appointed me, and particularly the one who appointed me for the last seven years, knew very well that, you know, whilst I, I was a good teacher and I, you know, and I did a good job with the students, but he knew that teaching, I was not so intent... Um, <laughs> well, I kept the wall from the doors and paid the <laughs> paid the mortgage, and uh, I really enjoyed it. But it was it was uh, I had an intention that I wanted to go into politics. Yeah. And I, I can't remember the ninety seven. I mean, you're obviously in a marginal yeah. seat, which is continued to be marginal. Um, how how going into that ninety seven election? How likely did you think? it was that you were going to win? Yeah. Well, I was selected, as with all of those marginal seats, I was selected, oh God, I think about two years in advance for that long slog, that long disciplined slog to get selected. And um, I thought when I was first selected, there, there was a reasonable chance. By the time the general election arrived, I had given up my job because I was uh, only just, but I had given up my job because I was confident, given the polls, that unless something awful happened, I was going to get elected. Uh, and sure enough, you know, I was, I was elected. I was by no means the sort of most uh, surprising person to get elected in, in. You know, there were way more sort of surprised people. 
Um, and I had, and therefore I had planned for it and I sort of, my head was in the right place and my family knew this was likely to happen and all of those things which were turned out subsequently to be quite important, not least for those people who didn't expect to be elected and it was a sort of mm. massive change for them and their families. I was quite struck by Stephen Twigg having taken the job as General Secretary for Fabian Society on the explicit understanding there was no way that he yeah. would be elected for <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, and then once in Parliament... Um, what was the, what was the, I mean, lots of MP, new MPs talk about how weird it is suddenly becoming a member of Parliament. What was the oddest thing about that, thing, you know, that first introduction to, to Parliament? Mm. I think, well, there was, it was sort of fantastically optimistic and positive because it was that 1997 landslide. I found it... You know, having done a job where you are very regimented and a bell goes and you turn up and you spend an hour with a group of people and then a bell goes and you move on somewhere else. For me, professionally, it was quite weird to be in a situation where I was able to set my own priorities in terms of what I wanted to focus on. And actually, probably, if I was doing it again, I would have been more careful about choosing the areas where I thought I could make an impact even as a backbench MP because actually I started off slightly sort of got to do everything got to do everything and and that's sort of legislation or constituency or all sorts so it was uh, you know quite early on I did a finance bill for example um, which was really good and interesting and I think the backbenchers I did that finance bill with, every single one of them went on to be at least a minister and most of them went into the cabinet. So it's obviously a good way to start. Um, oh, incidentally, that, that was out of choice, I'm assuming, that finance bill, was it? Or you just found yourself, a whip sidled up to you and said, right, you're on this bill. Bit of both. Right. <laughs> I, was, I, was point, I was sort of pointed at. and uh, But I was very happy to do it, you know, yeah. and it was sort of um, interesting. I did an education bill. Um, but then also, of course, you have to set up the whole of the constituency operation. So, I mean, the other thing I had never done, I would, I'd been a head of department as a teacher, but I'd never run an office or a team of people in the way in which you have to as, a, as an MP. So actually that whole sort of recruiting and interviewing people, setting up all of the, the stuff around the office was all, you know, quite... Difficult, really. Yeah. Um, deciding how you wanted to operate in the constituency, I have to say I did have a big advantage in that my predecessor in the constituency had been Eric Forth, right. um, who had actually already gone on the chicken run because of the way that the boundary reorganisation had happened. He and Bromley, yeah, yeah, he ended up in Bromley in Chislehurst. And he, uh, a year before the election, cancelled all his constituency surgeries. <laughs> <laughs> So I had already... In so a you were about of, to look good by comparison. Exactly. Uh, so people already sort of thought, oh gosh, you know, she, there's opportunities to go and see her and all of those things. So all of that needed to be done. And then, you know, I sort of had to make a decision about what was I wanting to pursue and be interested in. And on the whole, I, I did decide that the things I was... <laughs> funny, given up where, where I subsequently ended up. But, you know, I had got an economics background, so I was interested in treasury and that sort of area. Mm. I ended up being on John Prescott's campaign team and linked to the DTI. Um, so I got to work with Margaret Beckett and John Hutton as Margaret's PPS and people like that quite early on. And then the other thing, of course, I maintained an interest in was education. Mm. Plus, a year after I was elected to Parliament, I had a baby as well. <laughs> so I was pregnant for quite a lot of that first year. So that, I mean, that first 
couple of years. The, the, the thing which is often striking about New York Police in particular, and after 97, I remember walking through Parliament and seeing MPs without offices mm. with sacks of mail mm. trying to deal with the constituency mm. work. And it's something which is often often missed by people who look at politics from the outside, the importance of that constituency role and how overwhelming it is. And having a baby as well at the same time, how did you, did you have any spare time? Because your weekends surely disappear. Yes, yeah. Um, <clears throat> firstly, you're absolutely right about that constituency role. You suddenly feel sort of an enormous sense of responsibility. Plus, in those days, it was all male. And you did, you know, on the very first day, pick up a great big pile of mail, which you just took, because you didn't have an office and you didn't have any sort of setup. you took it to a committee room that had been set aside for new MPs, you found yourself a little corner and you started reading through the letters and trying to think about what, how you were going to respond to them and, and, and take them forward. Staff, no staff, no equipment, no, you know... A sort of slightly dodgy early style mobile phone it being 1997 that was about it you know um so that was a sort of um uh that was quite a shock to uh quite a shock to the system and I've forgotten the second part of what you asked me in that question uh, I've forgotten it myself um, <laughs> exactly. well I guess I mean I'm, I'm fascinated by um what MPs do locally because oh, it yeah, seems to yeah. me that Weekends, you yeah. know um MPs, you know, in order to get elected, it, it, MPs will rarely get elected for what they do nationally or yeah. in Parliament. Yeah. They'll, if there's a personal vote, it comes from what you do locally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it does seem all consuming. Talking to lots and lots of MPs, it seems all consuming. That I think there is a massive benefit in the UK system in the constituency link, but I think there's also evidence over the last. Uh, you know, 20, 30 years, that that constituency role has become more and more significant. And you're absolutely right that you are expected to be uh, in the constituency at the weekend, doing a lot of different activities. You're expected to be the um, a sort of... You, you, you have a very clear civic role... Uh, I mean, I also was keen to play a sort of um, catalyst role in trying to sort of um, take forward the sorts of issues that I was interested in, you know, whether or not it was pushing a bit on the development of the town centre or um, trying to get our schools to be a bit more effective than they had been, or that type of thing where you can sort of bring people together. Um, but in the end, your um you're right, you know, what I then subsequently did as a minister, until I became Home Secretary, on the whole, my constituents probably didn't really know what I did as a minister. Mm. And that's partly because one of the best pieces of advice I received right at the very beginning of my ministerial life from Jeff Rooker was, he said, um, there is one constituency in the country where it's better that they don't know that you're a minister, and that's your own. So I had never really, um, I never really pushed that, but... Um, you, so therefore, you have that enormous range of responsibilities that go from the pothole through to the vote on military action, where you feel that enormous international and national sense of responsibility on your shoulder. And of course, if you're a minister as well, the decision-making about issues of national 
policy. Now, there are times, actually, when being able to relate back to your constituency is enormously helpful for your policymaking. So my first ministerial job was in the Department for Education, where David Blunkett was the um, uh, Secretary of State. And, and famously, David used to come back on a Monday morning with a sort of dictated memo um, that was a sort of, rant would be the wrong word, but a sort of Blanquettesque um, uh, diatribe about what he had seen or not seen in Sheffield that weekend and how this demonstrated that policy was or was not working. And I think there is, there is an element of that, but there's also a sort of certain disconnect between what you do at a national level and what you do at a constituency mm. level. But do you feel that um, you got more done in the constituency than as a... I mean, in terms of, ta- if you look back, mm. and tangible achievements... I remember talking to, I think it was Tony Wright, um, who said that, you know, in, in Westminster, you're, even as a minister, you're, you're part of many. In the, in the constituency, you are pursuing casework, which comes to a conclusion. You get a result one way or the other. And if you find somebody, some housing who is homeless, this is tangible. Yeah. He said it's like, you know, like the satisfaction you get from doing the washing up. It's a job done. There's a sense of conclusion. Yeah. In Westminster and Whitehall, often there is no end to it. It just keeps yeah. going and going yeah. and going. Um, I disagree with him slightly about Whitehall. I think that influential places are your constituency casework and activity and also, to in a different way, as a minister. The least, So that's absolutely right. As a constituency MP, I could make things happen for individuals. Mm. I could, in a limited way, make things happen through the council or through some of the other local bodies. I could certainly sort of bring people together and sort of catalyse that activity. As a minister, in the areas for which I had responsibility, I could make decisions which translated into action, and that was really, really satisfying. Notwithstanding, I think you're right, there's a context of the whole of the rest of government, all of the other pressures that are playing on you. Frankly, as a backbench MP, I mean, I, I was lucky... Also, a David Blunkett comment when when he first met me and he talked about my constituency, he said, you're very lucky, you're never going to be an opposition MP. Well, actually, I was also very lucky that I wasn't a backbench MP for very long because there is a real limit to what you can do in Westminster as a backbench MP. You do realise that your role, you know, it's an important role, but it's a scrutiny and accountability role. If you want to be, you know, I think there are some MPs who initiated, for example, changes to legislation. But in order to do that, they took the decision pretty early on that they were going to be maverick to a certain extent and they were not going to um, toe the party line, if you like. Well, I never wanted to do that. Therefore, uh, there was there was limited creativity, I think it would be fair to say, as a backbench mm-hmm. MP. And you became a minister in... 1999. So that was two years after you were elected. Yes. Um, With a one-year-old baby. It seemed, yeah. <laughs> how, how was that? that was, this was, that was the Department of Health. Department uh, Education. Ed- education right. first. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, so you went from education to health? Yes. To DTI? Yes. Back to education? Yes. Chief, Chief Whip. And then Home, Home Secretary. Secretary. Yeah. So how was, how was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so... Uh, in 1999, I was sitting at home. Um, I had lit a candle. I don't have a Catholic background, but I had lit a candle 
because I was sort of vaguely hopeful about the reshuffle and I continued doing that incidentally every time there was a reshuffle for the whole of the time that I was in um, and, and it worked I it worked right. the phone the phone rang the and the voice said um, the Prime Minister would like to see you today and it was all very exciting I threw my baby onto the floor if I remember <laughs> rightly um, to be picked up by his father my kids say yeah that just about summed up the next 10 years mum. anyway um then I got in the car, drove to my husband drove me to the station, up to Downing Street, got to the gates of Downing Street, and I said, oh, oh, the Prime Minister, I'm Jackie Smith, the Prime Minister wants to see me, and the guy looked up and down his list and went, oh, no, you're not on the list, at which point I thought, oh, no, it's all cool, it's all a terrible mistake. But anyway, I eventually got in there, and um, Tony Blair said, uh, well, you know, we sort of thought that with your education background, it would be good if you went to the Department for Education and... Um, uh, I sort of went, oh, thank you very much, and five minutes in and out. Um, uh, interestingly, of course, in terms of ministerial appointments, that was the first and only time at which anything in which I had professional experience, well, I suppose the second time I went to education, uh, was the sort of prompt of my ministerial role. And as I often say to people, actually the important thing, the important skill in being a minister is the skill of being a minister, not the skill of having been a teacher or having been a police officer or anything else. But anyway... Um, so that was then a, uh, you know, that becoming a minister is an enormous sort of physical and cultural shock. Uh, it was a fabulous team to work in. It was David Blunkett as the Secretary of State. It was Estelle Morris as my immediate boss. It also at that point had in it um, employment as well as higher education. So Tessa Jowell was in the department, Margaret Hodge was in the department, Malcolm Wicks, blessing, was in the department, um, Tessa Blackstone during the time I was there. So it was just... just thrown in. Oh, totally. So you walk out of Downing Street, you walk, if you're the most junior minister as I was, to the department. The... Um, a senior official or the or the permsec is there at, literally at the door to greet you. You go up to your office. Your private secretary meets you and introduces you to your private office, um, and starts talking to you about how you know. So this is probably within an hour and a half of you leaving uh, Downing Street. How do you want to organise your time? What are your priorities in your diary? You begin to to meet officials and um, to talk about the things that are sort of ongoing and you know what would you be interested in. I can always you 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 get introduced to the enormous amount of paperwork that you deal with as a minister. I can remember on that very first day, my private secretary said, "Ah, your predecessor, which was Charles Clark, had been working on the uh, a revision of the national curriculum." There's an issue about, I forget precisely what it was, Ari or something. Anyway, that's unfinished. And the Secretary of State would like your advice on what we should do with this. This is the first day. I was due to go on holiday, I think, the next day. I said, oh, right, OK, so would it be possible for me to take the stuff away and sort of come back with my conclusions in a couple of weeks after my holiday? At which point, my <laughs> private secretary, who was so lovely, looked at me pityingly and said... No, the Secretary of State is expecting it tomorrow. <laughs> so that was my sort of uh, baptism of fire in the speed with which um, decisions are expected in ministerial life and the breadth of um, decisions and papers and things that you have to deal with very, very And quickly. how long does it take you to learn to do 
the job. I mean, you talked mm. about you know mm. the, the, the skill of being a minister, which yeah. you take, I guess, from department yeah. to department. Yeah. But in terms of actually getting to grips with the policy area or actually getting to grips with being a minister and what a minister does, yeah. without any training, yeah. you've got a private office who are generally you know pretty good civil servants. Yeah. But I think it depends on how good your private secretary is because you are right, there's no training. Um, and actually there is a lot of machinery of government stuff that how could you know it if you've never been yeah. taught it? As well as the sort of realisation of the political way that you need to operate if you're actually going to get things done, mm. the work that, you you know, the sort of developing of relationships with the whole range of stakeholders, etc. My, I was, I was blessed with my private secretary. She was brilliant. She took me through things like what a cabinet committee does. You know what I'd be expected to do when I went there. What a submission was. You know uh, all of the uh, how the department worked in terms of the sort of paperwork and what I was expected to do. I had all. I had made it part of my mission in my two years as a backbencher to spend quite a lot of time in the chamber of the House of Commons so I knew quite a lot about how ministers answered questions or took part in debates and I incidentally I think that was a massive benefit that I did that I some of my other colleagues who were promoted quickly really suffered because they didn't know how to work in the chamber of the House of Commons. So I understood the sort of link to Parliament, which actually is something that civil servants are notoriously poor on, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, but but the rest of it, you sort of learn by doing. Yeah. But you learn you're learning at such a pace that actually I think you're reasonably ineffective for. Yeah. The first stage. I mean, I think it was probably a good thing to start as, or it's a good and bad thing to start as a parliamentary undersecretary. You know, the thing about being a parliamentary undersecretary of state is your areas of real initiative in policy development are quite narrow. So you're not having to do that thing which you really need to do as a minister, which is to sort of set a strategic direction as early as possible, except in a relatively small number of areas. What you are doing is being on the receiving end of a load of stuff that gets rained down on you from your ministerial colleagues above. So, you know, I frequently used to receive invitations to events and speeches and conferences that said at the top of them, the Secretary of State doesn't want to do this, ask Estelle Morris. And Estelle Morris had written, ask Jackie. And so, you know, I realised that I was like bottom of the pile. But um, it's... That means that you get to learn about, um, you know, a whole range of different aspects of your of your policy. Do you, I mean, at that level, where, where was the point at which you found that you could sort of draw breath and think strategically during your ministerial career? Because, you know, my own experience of this is just looking at the minister's diary and it's filled from eight in the morning until yeah. eight at night. Then you're probably in Parliament afterwards or at dinner yeah. trying to sort something else out. Yeah. You just, and then you've got the constituency at the weekend and young children. Yeah. So where, I don't think you, you ever... I don't think you. To be to be perfectly frank, I think almost the only times that you draw breath are when you go on holiday, when you um, you know very occasionally if you are given the opportunity in some sort of an away day or something like that. Although I have to say, ministers, no, hardly ever. 
very bad. Ministers are very bad themselves at creating space for themselves and their teams to think. Um, the moment at which you're coming to the end of one job and there's a reshuffle coming and you think you're going to be doing another job, if you've got an idea what it is, that's the sort of moment when you can be fresh and bring some ideas to it. Apart from that, very little opportunity. Um, more ability to do it as you become more senior mm. because there's more over which you can have an influence and actually you've got a bit more of a choice yeah. about where you focus your efforts and what you set as your priorities there is not a lot of discretion as a, as a sort of very junior minister about what you can and can't do yeah. and then how did the I mean, because you went from was it DTI to Chief Whip uh, no back to education, education again then yeah. Chief Whip. yeah how did that I mean that's a very different sort of job yes where you're I guess not dealing with as much no. paperwork as yeah. you would do, but yeah. the, the politics is, yeah. I guess, much more intense. I loved it because I think... DT Wait, were you after that job? Did it come as no, a surprise? No, it came as a complete... Right. It, came, uh, it came as a surprise because what had happened was I went to the DTI and, if I'm perfectly frank, I think the DTI, even though I did Minister for Equality and I did Industry and... Um, corporate governance and all sorts of things. So, you know, there was a lot of stuff going on. I did the Civil Partnership Bill. But it was less frantic than either education or health had been. And, for example, particularly in health, there is an enormous amount of making speeches, doing media stuff. I can remember going to the DTI and sitting down on the first day with the press team and saying, OK, so um, what will we be, you know, what, will I, what, what bids will I have this week? What will I need to be doing media stuff on this week? And they sort of looked at me and they went, oh, uh, we don't think there is anything. <laughs> Which is sort of, in one way, surprising, and in another way, a blessed relief after yeah. the, the health job, where sort of, you know, most... If you had a week when you didn't have one or two days when you're up at six o'clock doing a tour of oh. Millbank, you'd be surprised. Yeah. Anyway, so going, that was reasonably sort of low-key and probably slightly um, not in the mainstream of government policy. Oh. Then I went to the Department for Education and I had responsibility for, the, uh, for an education bill, which was controversial. The Prime Minister was extremely interested in it. Um, we had some trouble with our backbenchers on it. So a lot of that was, one, developing policy, but two, frankly, a lot of handling of Labour MPs. Yeah. And to that extent, when I look back on it, I'm therefore not surprised that Tony Blair, as it was, said uh, she's had a lot of experience of handling Labour MPs and actually, you know, we were reasonably successful in doing it. And I'd also had a lot of contact with Number 10, and I think that was the reason for going into the cabinet and going as um, chief going as chief whip. Did you enjoy it? I loved it because you are right. You go from a situation where you are taking boxes full of work and because I was doing a bill, file, files piled up of reading away every night and every weekend to a position where in the week you don't have a box at all and at the weekend <laughs> there's something missing from my hand as I left the office. And at the weekend, you have like half a box with, you know, what you're going to talk to the leader of the house about on Monday and, you know, what the business is going to be and that sort of thing. However, what you do have is, you know, I went from spending a lot of the weekend doing my box to spending quite a lot of the weekend on the phone to people. So um, there's a lot more politics. You get you suddenly come go from the 
silo of your departmental ministerial job to having a view across the whole of government mm. in terms of anything that's going to hit Parliament, so all the legislation. Because you're in the Cabinet, you suddenly have a much wider view. You, of course, get to know your colleagues again, who you've sort of, however hard you've tried, you've you slightly... Yeah, you are in Parliament, you're in the, the, you know, you're having your lunch in the members' tea room, you're there wandering around, you're in the chamber, you're hearing what people are saying. I loved the fact that you worked with a team of whips who also, you know, had all the intelligence about what was going on. Mm. Um, There's an element of it that is about sort of um, supporting and mentoring and helping people. I tried to do... uh, I tried to sort of develop uh, more of a sort of constructive approach to the way in which we handled our uh, MPs. All, all of that, I, I, I probably more than other chief whips spoke. I did some media, a little bit of media mm. stuff on sort of general political issues. So I, I really loved it, actually. I loved it as, yeah. a, as a job. So you mentioned there that you, you tried to sort of do it, the job in a slightly different mm. way. I can't remember who your predecessor was. was it wasn't uh, Hilary Armstrong. It was Hillary, it was yeah, Hillary. yeah, yeah. And she'd obviously yeah. been in that post for a, yeah, a long time. Yeah, yeah. But I've heard you talk before about, you know, there's there's a lot more subtlety to, to being chief with than simply, you know, being yeah. aggressive with people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just, what sort of skills do you need to employ? I mean, the Labour yeah. majority was 60, yeah. 70, somewhere around. Something like that. So it wasn't, yeah. every vote wasn't a no, 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 absolutely not. So therefore, I think... There was a feel, you know, to be honest, Tony, as it's now clear, was coming to the end of his time. We'd been in government, uh, you know, nearly 10 years. And uh, people were, there was a certain amount of, people People probably knew that whether they were going to be ministers or not. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's not to say that people didn't, you know, newly elected people in 2005, I can remember trooping into my office to say why aren't I a minister yet after a year but anyway um, and therefore you need a more sophisticated way I mean I think you do at any point but you need a more sophisticated way of handling people and I also felt that actually there was an awful lot of talent in the PLP there was an awful lot frankly of contacts Mm -hmm. in the PLP that weren't be weren't really being maximized for the benefit of the party's policy development our relationships because the other thing that you realise happens after a while in government. When you're in opposition, everybody wants to talk to you, assuming they think you're going to get into government. Um, and you have a wide range of people that you're talking to, ideas that you're able to build on. The longer you're in government, the more you piss people off. <laughs> the more defensive you become, yeah. the, the, those relationships get fractured and you don't have that breadth of experience yeah. to draw on. And I, I slightly, you know, I sort of had the idea that perhaps we could use MPs and their contacts to develop some of that again. And I was because I was only there for a year, I didn't really have the chance to develop that. But I'd started working on it. And I think it would be a good thing yeah. to do. And then Home Secretary. Yes. As the first female Home yes. Secretary. Yes. Um, <laughs> how, yeah, how was that? Well, it was a shock to get the job. Um, I often say to people, you know, the interesting thing about being a minister is you don't make a job application. You don't, you know, it's not based on what you think your previous experience is. And in fact, at the point at which Gordon took over from Tony, that was the only time in the whole of my ministerial life when I felt senior enough 
to express a view about what job I would like. Mm-hmm. And he gave me a different one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I was extremely... What was, I was the one you were after? Education. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, had been changed to schools and school uh, families, children's schools and families, um, and Ed, uh, because Ed had designed yeah. it for himself, essentially. Um, so uh, I was very pleased, uh, surprised, uh, slightly shocked. Um, and in that job, of course, I had an even more immediate um, induction because the day after... I became Home Secretary, we had a foil terror attack in London and in Glasgow. So I was, I suppose the thing that I probably knew least about in the job, because it's a thing that is least open to the rest of government, was the sort of counter-terror intelligence agencies stuff. But I got a pretty quick induction. Yeah, it was within a few days. It was, it? That it was uh, I became Home Secretary on the Thursday, and I was woken up on the Friday morning right. with the news. Okay. Yes, it, I was thinking about um, was it Roy Jenkins who said that um, as Home Secretary at any one time there are at least two or three dozen civil servants working on policies which will end your career as Home Secretary without knowing they're doing it. Mm. It's a you know, fiendishly complex mm. department, especially at that stage when it, you know it's breath, breath was so well. It had just, of course, I took over from John Reid. And John Reed had, yeah, John Reed had taken out the just the sort of prison stuff and given it to the Ministry of Justice, which made for an interesting dynamic with the Secretary of State for Justice. Although, quite helpfully, when I was Chief Whip, Jack Straw was leader of the House. When I became Home Secretary, Jack Straw became Justice. Justice. So we had developed a sort of relationship, which he sort of rather. sweetly and, and slightly weirdly said I feel um, I feel fatherly towards you <laughs> <laughs> well, which as nice. we were which was lovely <laughs> and he was very sweet except when we used to argue about you know me wanting to be tough on sentencing and him saying you can't put any more people in prison and all of those sort of traditional arguments that the Home Secretary and the uh, um, Justice Secretary have uh, but um, so it was It was still a white bit, but of course the reason for, one of the reasons for that split was because actually John Reid had taken a lot of the architecture of counter-terror into the Home Office and had set up the Office for Security and Counter-Terrorism. So that had become a much bigger part of the job than had been the case, let's say, even when we started in government in 1997. Mm. So probably, you know, the job roughly broke down in thirds, counter-terror, um, immigration, although I had a minister who was very sort of um, kept a lot of the work to him, not in a bad way, but was sort of very focused on it. And um, therefore, I probably did less immigration, but I did a lot of policing and crime because I was mm-hmm. very keen to deliver and embed the whole neighbourhood policing uh, idea and commissioned topically today, Louise Casey, to carry out a a review into um, crime and communities and confidence, because I wanted to, I had a theme of how you tried to sort of develop the role of neighbourhoods and communities in working alongside the police to um, to counter crime, and also to try and get the police to be focused a bit more on their relationships with other agencies and the community, rather than simply as a sort of um, 
traditional form of policing. Mm. And there's a massive legislative, you know, the Home Office always seems to get more yeah. legislation than anybody else. Yeah. And I was once told by a civil servant working in the Economic and Domestic Secretariat, they, he gave me a figure, which I'm going to have to make up, about mm. the amount of Home Office legislation which is never implemented mm. because it's superseded by the next mm. bill coming mm. through, mm. which updates it. And it was something like 30 or 40% never yeah. implemented for that yeah. reason. So how did you cope with, you know, going from Chief Whip, where you, you know, could swan around and talk to people, <laughs> <laughs> to one where you're dealing with that, that massive, you know, the expectation coming from Number 10 in particular, yeah. for just to get this, these bills through. Well, the interesting thing, of course, uh, the difference between a Minister of State role and a Secretary of State role, one of the differences is, you know, as Minister of State, you are absolutely embedded in the detail of a piece of legislation and you, you know all of it and you deal with the concessions in all the areas. When you're Secretary of State, you, you are deciding the sort of overall areas that you want to legislate on, but you're not doing that detailed work. So therefore, you are very much focusing on the areas where there are problems. Mm. So in counter-terror, that would be pre-charge detention, for example, um, uh, or areas where I decided I particularly wanted to take an interest. So we legislated on uh, changing the approach uh, in prostitution, for example, to criminalise demand mm. rather more than supply. And I took an interest in that because that was quite a sort of big, big change in approach. Um, so uh, there was... Uh, and there's probably, and I didn't do, you know, and I and I missed to a certain extent all the sort of handling in Parliament. Although having said that, when you've got a big rebellion on a counter-terror measure, you do a lot of talking to parliamentarians and um, uh, sorting those things out. And so there was a there was quite an element, uh, quite an element. And this that, that element of it, you're seeing potentially rebellious yes. MPs yeah. in one to one in groups yes. or. Yeah, one-to-one, um, starting in groups, then going one-to-one. Uh, you're seeing, um, I mean, the other thing you do as a Secretary of State, of course, is you don't, don't only see, which is different from Chief Whip, you don't only see your own MPs. Mm. You know, I can remember meeting all nine of the DUP MPs. Um, I, we talk, I talked to Tories, we talked to the House of Lords. So there's a, on the whole, sort of, because... Especially with counter-terror, there is an element of it that people can't have had access to and you need to be able to share some of that yeah. if you're going to get people to... And how successful were you? We won the vote in the <laughs> Commons, but we were always going to lose in the Lords, I think, so we did a little um, um, accommodation, I would call it. Not new turn. <laughs> I, know, I mean, over that, over that sort of period of you know, being an MP and a minister... Um, talked at the beginning about you know being a teacher mm. being a, you know, an average teacher interested in politics thrown into you know becoming elected then within two years becoming a minister i mean it's it's the the learning curve for for you for lots of mps in some position is, mm. is massive yeah um you must come out of that sort of by the time you left uh, parliament feeling like a completely different person with it's it often seems ironic to me that you know you know Powell's famous phrase that all political careers end in failure. Yeah. But um, it it seems that by the end of your ministerial career, you've got, you know, you're actually building up a very significant set of skills. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, the the skill of being a minister. You know what you've described in terms of being, you know, parliamentary under secretary through 
various departments, chief whip and secretary. It's about managing political change, mm. it? all the different dimensions of managing mm. political change. I mean, how would you, if you could sum up, you know, that whole period in, in, in Parliament as, as being minister, mm. how did it change you? So it's a very long oh, question. Um, for the better, I think it gave me more confidence in my ability to make decisions. It gave me more confidence in my ability to um, uh, gather a range of different sets of evidence and arguments and form out of that a policy conclusion, which incidentally I grew to really enjoy doing, the sort of wrestling with how we're going to cope with this um, problem. I think it gave me more confidence about... um, uh, you know, just some basic things like talking in public, and or, I mean, I, I was used to speaking in front of a ruly, an unruly mob, even before I did that in Parliament. But um, so I think I developed that skill. I certainly developed the skill of being able to do an enormous amount of work. I realised how hard I could work, um, and I got an understanding of the multifaceted nature of political decision-making and the range of interests and factors that need to be taken into consideration in any uh, decision, the way in which, you, in order to implement that, you're going to have to persuade an awful a range of different people, not all of whom have the same incentives for the success of your policy and how you get those aligned is going to be important. So... Uh, and I gained a good understanding of the functioning of our political system and the, and, the, and the various different parts of it. What you lose, I think, is, you know, and I see it in my parliamentary colleagues now, is you do become a bit... I, I, I wholly disagree with people that say, oh, MPs are all out of touch. That is utter nonsense because I have never been more in touch than when I was doing a whole range of different policy issues and then at the weekend knocking on people's doors and having a series of constituency surgeries. I really knew what people felt was working, what they thought wasn't working and I knew more about a range of people's lives than I ever knew before or after. However, you do become quite self-centred, I think. You become very focused on the idea that it is government and legislation that will really make a difference to people's lives. And I think you forget the multifaceted lives that people lead. I think you forget the influence of the people who are working in the services that you're running. I think you forget the whole range of things that are impacting on um, people, emotional as well as, you know, the, the whole range of things that, that will sometimes prevent what you think is a quite straightforward, I'm going to change this piece of legislation and it's going to have that effect, or I'm going to introduce this policy and it's going to be delivered in that way everywhere across the country. You don't quite realise how those things are sort of mitigated and um, impacted on as they go from you as a politician to the people that they are supposed to. And how has that helped you? I mean, as you mentioned at the start, where you're doing work with us in the very... Delighted to be able to draw on those skills. But in terms of what you've learnt as a politician, I mean, I have my own gripes about the way that international political support is done, mm. that it's often very apolitical. Yeah. And there is an increasing interest in how you insert politics. 
politics into supporting the government institutions yeah. in other countries. But more often than not, it seems to miss, if you like, the small p politics, the, the human interaction. Yeah. What is it that yeah. drives politicians in the first exactly. place? If you're a minister, what are you trying to deal with? Yeah. And it's, it's still far too technical, yeah. it seems to me. Yeah, and actually, this work that we're doing in Jordan on decentralisation is a perfect example of that. Because actually, I think what we understand is, in some ways, an MP may, you know, so the plan in Jordan is to devolve power to municipalities and governorates. Actually, of course, many MPs will feel that that is a direct uh, reduction in their power and influence. The, the idea in theory is that that's going to mean that all of a sudden MPs will be focusing on the national and strategic and they won't be focusing on the, the local and what they can do for their constituents. That's an utter misunderstanding of the nature of what it's like to be an MP because actually you, you know, even if it's, it's not even something unworthy, i.e., you know, I want to, uh, you know, somehow or another I owe to people who've elected me. You, you become an MP because you, you, you sort of are embedded in your community and in wanting to change it and you've had to go through a process of gaining support, however you, you've done it, um, through a political party or through a tribe or through your business contacts. And you remain committed and attached to that. And you're not suddenly going to divorce yourself from that and only worry about the national and strategic. Oh, and incidentally, in four years' time, you're going to be seeking re-election. And going back to your constituents and saying, well, you know I never showed the slightest bit of interest in that road that was being built or that school that was being developed because actually I was focusing on the national strategic interests of our country, but would you vote for me? Whilst at the same time, a local politician has been out and about all around the area Dealing, listening to people and being present and dealing li- dealing with the issues that they're concerned about. Well, frankly, that's the person that they're, <laughs> they're probably going to act as, elect as an MP. And you can rail against that system all you like, but that is the nature of what's going to happen. And unless you can align the incentives of your national politicians and your local politicians, at the very least, you're not going to deliver what you want to deliver and there is the potential for disruption. And I think it's that type of feel, I suppose, for what for what motivates you as a politician and, and the life you live and therefore the things that are likely to impact on you that has been a bit missing, I think. And if you had to give a, a piece of advice or there was one insight which you, you wish you'd had you know, before either becoming an MP or a minister that you could give to you know, some of the people that were working with you, is there something that you would say to them? I think it would be... Don't forget the multifaceted interests and contacts that politicians have because all of those work on their understanding and their interests and the direction that they're likely to take. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I'm finding with a lot of these discussions that I could easily keep talking to people like Jackie for at least another hour. And I'm sure she would have given me another hour had I pushed her for it. But um, I hope you enjoyed that. It was a a fascinating discussion. Um, Jackie, in one of her tweets, suggested that our podcast promised to be as compulsive listening as the Archer's omnibus. Personally, I have no idea. I never listen to the Archer's.
pictures, but I'm sure that's a good thing. So, so Jackie, thank you for that. Um, uh, next time, uh, we'll be back with an interview with David Halpern, who's the head of the Behavioural Insights team, or the Nudge Unit, uh, in London. Uh, and I'm sure many of you are aware about the, the approach of behavioural economics and how it's informing uh, lots of policy making in the UK and other countries, but also how it's increasingly now being used in development circles to try and support the development of governance and economic development in many, many different countries. At Global Partners Governance, we have been arguing for some time that it's all about behaviour. So, talking to David was fascinating and he reveals an awful lot of insights about the sort of stuff that the Nudge Unit is doing and the way in which they do it. So I hope you can join us then. That should be uh, out in about two weeks' time. We're going to try and stick to the, the rotor of doing a podcast every two weeks from now on. And hopefully there will be no more glitches. And I hope you can join us then. Bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online.